When evaluating new clinical technology or healthcare technology, we are often very readily fed headlines and highlights of what this technology is able to do for us. However, it's important to understand that those headlines and those highlights evolve out of clinical research. And the methodology of how that clinical research is conducted may influence how you view those headlines and how much credibility you put into those highlights. We are gonna step through the Marie methodology for evaluating clinical research. Marie, M-A-A-R-I-E, is an acronym that is used to evaluate in a critical way the aspects of clinical research so that you can understand if there are biases or influences or potential gaps or maybe even alternate conclusions that you could draw from the same research that may not be apparent when you are just looking at the highlights. The acronym MARIE stands for Method, Assignment, Assessment, Results, interpretation, and extrapolation. The first M is method, and that's looking at the study population and how that population is going to be determined. The first A is assignment, which is looking at how are you going to determine the study group versus the control group. The second A is assessment, and that is simply looking at the outcomes of each of those groups. The results, R, is the comparison of the outcome of those two groups. The I is interpretation, and that's looking at that comparison and drawing conclusions for the study of the participants. And then the E is extrapolation, so that's taking your conclusion and looking at what can be assumed to be true outside of the sphere of that study for other individuals, other groups, and other populations. Let's look closer at each of these items, starting with method, the M. So remember, method is establishing your population of study. So the first question you might ask is, are there valid inclusion and exclusion criteria for those patients? You have to be careful that you're not including certain patient populations that may impact or have an influence on the results of that study, or excluding certain populations that may also have an impact. You have to be careful that your inclusion and exclusion criteria for your patients or doesn't introduce some sort of bias into your study. The individuals that you're including or excluding from that study influences that population that you're studying and therefore influences what conclusions you're able to determine about that population. So it's important to understand what your inclusion and exclusion criteria are and to be very transparent to that and very cognizant of that when you're doing your assessment and drawing your conclusions. When looking at the method, you also want to look at what is that sample size of that population. Is it sufficient? You want to make sure that it's statistically significant. Doing a study of five patients and trying to draw conclusions that would apply to 5,000 patients is probably not appropriate. You want to make sure that your population is represented and that the conclusions that you draw can be applied to not only the population you're studying, but can be extrapolated outside of your study. 
And another question you want to ask yourself about the method is do the outcome variables appropriately answer the study question? Meaning, the variables and the influences that you're going to introduce into this population, does it truly illustrate or influence or lead to answering the question that you're trying to address in this study? Now we move on to the first A, which is assignment. The primary consideration under assignment that you want to look at, is there a random patient assignment? Is this a randomized trial? And how is that randomization achieved? You also want to consider, are the investigators in the trial or study blinded? If the patients in the trial don't know whether they're in the study group or the control group, they are considered blinded. However, if the investigators in the trial don't know which group the patients are in, then the investigators are considered blinded. If both are blinded, that's considered double-blinded. Double-blinding is ideal, but not always practical. Now we move to the second A, which is assessment. This is really the observation of the study and how the data is collected. Ideally, through this observation phase, you're taking some sort of a measurement. You need to ask the question, is that measurement, first of all, appropriate, and second of all, is it accurate enough for this study? You also need to ask the question, is there any potential bias in the study on the part of the clinicians, the patients, or the data recorders? This again comes back to that, the blinding or the double blinding. We already talked about the clinicians and the patients being blinded, but there may be additional individuals involved in the study, such as data recorders or people observing the study, that may have a potential of influencing or presenting some sort of bias into the study. So it's important to understand the full methodology and the procedure of the study and identify whether there might be any influences from the various individuals involved in the study. Now we move on to the R, which is results. This is where we look at the observed results, the data, the measurements, and we compare to figure out if there's any sort of correlation. The first question to ask is, is there a significant difference between the two groups? When you're comparing two groups, oftentimes you'll use a statistical value called a p-value, and that represents the correlation between the two groups, and really it represents the statistical significance of that data. It shows you the probability that the results observed in that sample represents a population. Now even if your p-value comes out as showing statistical significance, you still have to do a deeper dive and consider the question of have any results been omitted or thrown out through the process of the clinical research prior to this calculation being done that may have influenced what that p-value ends up being. For instance, if you start with a clinical research trial with a thousand patients, and by the end of the trial, you calculate your p-value, but only using 80 patients. Well, you look back into the methodology and to the procedure of the research, and you realize that 20 patients were eliminated from the trial. So the question is, why were they eliminated? It may be because they didn't comply with certain requirements of the trial, or it may be that there were logistical issues with them, or it may be that there were some mistakes in the measurements associated with those patients that were assumed to have potential impact on the results of that trial. 
Regardless of how that population of patients were omitted and for what reason they were omitted, you have to ask the question, did I just remove an important variable or an important aspect from that population that may have impacted my results? Now we move on to the I. I is interpretation. This is where we look at whether there are valid clinical interpretations of the statistical results. In other words, do the authors correctly apply the results to the original study question? Did they look at the data and the correlations and draw the appropriate conclusions from those outcomes? It's also important to ask, does the interpretation include reference to any adverse effects that have been identified throughout this trial? In other words, if you study a thousand patients and you say that this technology was effective for, say, 800 patients, that shows that the technology was a success. However, if there were five patients that had an adverse effect during the course of this trial, you would want to consider that in the conclusions of the study. So even though the technology seems to be effective in the majority of the patients involved, it's significant that there was an adverse effect, even if it was on a small sample of the patient population. If this scenario were to occur, you want to make sure that not only do those adverse effects show up in the documentation, but also that it is called out in the conclusions of the research. If the authors omitted that from their conclusion section, even though it was in the body of the research, you wouldn't have known that if you just read the conclusions. Now you move on to the final step in the Marie framework for evaluating clinical research, which is the E, extrapolation. This is where you ask the question, are the study results so compelling that the results can be reasonably expected in a general population of patients? Also, can it be projected that the real benefit will be outside somewhat artificial trial atmosphere? So when you get into the real world, will this result occur? My name's Matt, and I drink soda. If you're confused what I'm talking about, you may call it pop, but it's the same thing. It's that fizzy, bubbly, soda, water, carbonated, flavory, sugary drink that you can buy at just about any store. My wife does not drink soda and she is doing all that she can to make sure that my kids don't get in the habit of drinking soda. So much so that anytime I get sick, have a cold or whatever it might be, she'll tell the kids, well, it's because dad drinks too much soda. I've always wondered if I could put together some sort of study or investigation to prove either that soda does make me sick or it doesn't. After all, what's my wife's scientific basis for making this claim that me drinking soda has caused me to have this cold? How would I go about investigating that? Well, I could do a population comparison, meaning I'll take a population of individuals, a large population. I don't really care what the specific individual makeup is of this population, just as long as it's a well-represented population, a large group, and I will do a study. Those that drink soda 
and those that don't, and I'll see what the likelihood of them getting the common cold is. Eh, sounds simple enough. But let's say the result comes back that those that do drink soda do tend to get the cold more often. Can I really, without a doubt, jump to the conclusion that that soda is the variable that caused that cold? Probably not. It could just be that people that drink soda tend to not wash their hands as much. Or people that don't drink soda tend to eat healthier. And maybe that contributes to not getting the cold. So I would need to do a deeper dive. How about a case-controlled study? I'm going to take a large population of people. Eh, we'll just call it 100 people. And five of them have colds and the rest of them do not. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to look, did the five of them that have colds drink soda? And what about the rest of the population? Do they drink soda? If it turns out that the five of those individuals do drink soda, can I come to the conclusion that the soda caused that cold? I guess it depends on what the larger population, those that didn't have the cold, how many of them drink soda. But it's still difficult to retrospectively go back and draw a conclusion as to what actually caused that cold in those individuals. So maybe this case-controlled study isn't the best approach either. If I looked back at the data, I would probably look at these five individuals got a cold. Yes, they drink soda, but here they also do all of these other things. I probably could justify a number of reasons why soda wouldn't be the direct correlation. Now, if my wife reviewed the data, she would probably look at the data and come with the other conclusion and say, well, soda has to be that direct correlation. Chances are that is the conclusion. So there's bias involved in how you look retrospectively at that data. So maybe let's try a cohort study. Cohort studies are known to be good at establishing cause and effect. I'm going to take a population of people. We'll say, let's take 200 people. And I'm going to follow them over time. And I'm going to measure how much soda they drink over time. And I'm going to measure how often they get the common cold. I'm going to make sure that the individuals I select for this study don't already have the cold because that would skew the data. So everyone will go in perfectly healthy and we'll measure them over a period of time and we'll see what happens. Now we're getting somewhere. That just might work. One problem might be, though, that case-controlled studies and the cohort studies are both observational studies. So I'm selecting these populations of individuals, and I'm observing those that drink soda and those that don't drink soda over a period of time with the cohort study. With the case-controlled study, I'm looking at people who already had the cold and looking back to figure out, did soda correlate with them getting that cold? So these are observational studies where I'm trying to make a judgment as to what caused what. I'm doing all this and I'm not imposing any variables onto the individuals. I'm not selecting who should drink soda and who should not. I am merely just observing those that do and those that don't. So it may be that those that do drink soda have other tendencies related or unrelated to soda that may play a factor in this study. And those that don't drink soda may or may not have other tendencies that may play a factor in the study. So I can't come to a complete conclusion because I'm not sure that my population of people in either case are exactly the same other than the fact that they drink soda. So maybe, just maybe, it's time for a randomized controlled trial. I'm going to take a population of 
let's say 200 people, and I'm gonna randomly select this group of people. So the 200 people are gonna be randomly selected, and then I'm gonna randomly split the two groups, 100 in one group, 100 in another group. So effectively, I have the same representation of the population in these two groups. Then, regardless of what their previous soda drinking habits were, I'm gonna tell one group, you cannot drink any soda, and I'll tell the other group, you should drink soda. Now, theoretically, I have two populations that are exactly the same, and I have imposed one variable change between the two groups, and I'm going to see what happens. Now, if the results come back that, yes, soda seems to cause the common cold, or maybe that it doesn't, can I still jump to that conclusion just using my population of 200 people split into two groups? What if there is some sort of environmental factor going on in the area where I drew that population from? In other words, would I get the same results for this study here if I go somewhere else? So maybe I should turn this into a multi-centered study. I am going to find a population of 200 people, but I am going to do a 200-person study in my town, and I'm going to do a 200-person study across the state and another across the country, and I'm going to get 10 different studies going at the same time. That will be a multi-center trial, and that'll give me a representation that will show me with very little doubt that the environment that I live in doesn't play a factor in whether soda does or does not cause a cold. And this study will be a prospective study because I'm designing the study and then the data is going to be collected and I'm going to draw conclusions from those results. It's completely randomized. I have my control group. I have my test group. We're good to go. I would love to do a double-blinded study, meaning that the individuals involved don't know which group they're part of, the control group or the study group. However, if you're drinking soda, you're going to know you're drinking soda. If you're not drinking soda, you're going to know you're not drinking soda. So it's unrealistic for me to assume that the participants in this trial would be able to be blinded from whether they are in the control group or the study group. Now this study is trying to determine whether soda, drinking soda, has a, an effect on whether I get the common cold. But now, what if some of the participants have allergies? Or what if some of them get something other than the cold, but it seems like it manifests itself similar to a cold, whether it's a, a, a minor respiratory infection or, or something of the sort? Someone's got to make that judgment call, so I think I'm going to need some clinicians involved, some doctors and nurses that are going to be able to make that call as to what sort of illness is actually presenting itself, because really I'm, I'm just concerned about the common cold. So, if I have a panel of physicians that are going to determine what the illness is if somebody gets an illness that presents itself similar to a cold, does it matter whether they know that the individual drinks soda versus the individual does not? Maybe not, but what if that physician does believe that drinking soda causes the common cold? Will they be more likely to call minor symptoms that maybe aren't really a cold, but call them a cold if they know that the participant is drinking soda? Versus if they're not drinking soda, may they just shrug it off as maybe allergies or some sort of minor nasal irritation? Maybe it would be a good idea if I blind those clinicians, meaning when they test those participants, they won't inadvertently or on purpose put any bias into the results of my study. So there you have it. I have my trial all set up and I'm going to finally be able to determine whether my wife is correct in telling my kids 
that daddy gets the common cold because he drinks too much soda. <coughs> now I just need to do some fundraising, get a few hundred volunteers and a few trucks full of soda. The acronym MARIE, M-A-A-R-I-E, stands for Method, Assignment, Assessment, Results, Interpretation, and Extrapolation. It is used to evaluate in a critical way the aspects of clinical research so that you can understand if there are biases or influences or potential gaps or maybe even alternate conclusions that you could draw from the same research that may not be apparent when you are just looking at the highlights.